At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. All right, tonight on Fast Money, break out your rally caps. Fundstrat's Tom Lee is here, and he's calling for a September surge and names the best opportunities for your money as we leap into fall. Walgreens topping the tape, the stock rallying, how our traders are playing the big move in WBA. And we are all over the after-hours action in shares of CrowdStrike and PVH. Both stocks on the move, very different directions, one down, one up 7%, the latest from their quarter straight ahead. All right, welcome everybody and good Tuesday evening. I'm Brian in for Melissa once again. And your trader lineup tonight, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and Dan Nathan. So let us now kick off this big hour talking about what else this red-hot summer for stocks. And maybe rolling a lucky seven. The S&P 500, now with its seventh straight monthly game. It hit an astonishing 12 record highs during the month. That is more than any other August in history. Financial and telecom stocks led the way, each gaining about 5% energy, the only sector that was in the red, and it's given up its spot as the best performer of the year. However, the question now is not what we've done. It's what we're going to do, Guy Adami. And everybody says, okay, I've made a bunch of money. Could we finally even get a minor move down in the weeks and months ahead heading into September? What say you? Hey, Brian, love to hear what Tom Lee has to say. Obviously, he's coming on. And as you know, being the craps player that you are, seven's only lucky on the come out roll. But when you have a table full of (laughs) chips, seven is not the number you want to throw. And, you know, we've been throwing a lot of numbers right now. Um, It's just a matter of time before seven comes up the wrong way. That said, where do you want to be? I still think these resource trades, although they've given a lot back over the last few weeks, I don't think that trade's over. I think Wells Fargo notwithstanding, the banks still make sense. And, you know, telecom uh, had a big month as well. It's interesting. We never talk about, at least I never bring up names, but American Tower, I just looked at it today, another new all-time high. The stock continues to go higher. I think Cowan put it on their best ideas list. Valuation of concern at close to 30 times next year's numbers but they have this international growth that a lot of people are getting around. So there are clearly yeah. some sectors that still work in this environment. All right, Tim, to follow up on that analogy, I mean, listen, forget about craps. <laughs> I'm an elite blackjack player. I always hit on 18. I see. It doesn't even matter what the dealer is showing. I'm kidding, sort of. Are we hitting on 18 if you're putting new money into this market right now? Well, so you play by the book, and, and, and ultimately, you know, the book tells you that September is the worst month of the year. It tells you that where you are going sometimes is a function of where you have come from, and sometimes, you know, taking a couple chips off the table uh, when you've had a market. that Look, the S&P, from just those intraday lows that we saw, I think, back on the 17th, 18th, but eight trading sessions is up 3.8%. Uh, the VIX has fallen almost 40% in those same eight days. Uh, the sense that the Fed is out, you know, out of 
uh, first of all, that the Fed is is not pulling the, you know, the, the, the Joker card and that you've got a dynamic here where it's smooth sailing. I just, I, you know, I don't agree with that. And we reminded again this morning that the ECB and other central banks are also trying to pick their spots. By the way, EU uh, inflation at 11-year highs. We know that story around here. And I just think, uh, I said it last night, T, I'll say it again, more Fed, more central banks equals more volatility. But um, I do think when you look at the underperforming sectors, and we spend a lot of time talking about banks, I think you have a nice kind of hybrid between growth and, and value there. But uh, although yields have pulled back over the last couple of days, you started to see some of that trade working again today. Uh, agree with Guy on resources trade. You've got an OPEC plus meeting coming up. Uh, and I think there's actually decent support for energy because I think these companies are run better. So um, I, I, I'm, I'm actually kind of cautious on positioning. Um, the, the Nasdaq's outperformed the S&P by 8% in the last you know, three months about. And I think that's the case where people are still questioning what growth is going to be once we get deep into the fall. But a little more bullish, maybe on energy. I know Tom Lee might agree with that. We'll get his views in a minute. But Dan, first to you, is the trend, I mean, the trend seems to be our friend here, but there's always things out there. What are you looking at? What are you advising your clients about? Well, I don't have clients, Brian, but I would tell you this, that for our viewers and our tweeps out there, I I mean, the trend has clearly been the friend. Draw a line, take a ruler from the lower left of of most major U.S. indice, um, large cap, uh, you know, indices and and just draw it up to you know that's what it looks like a nice 45 degree angle it's held really nicely you could also do that on the resistance side if you look at the ndx where it topped out yesterday is really at at, at a very technical extended level in my opinion so i think you have to differentiate between what you might think of from an investment time horizon versus a trading one i think from a near-term trading one i don't really see a lot of upside heading into september with the s p up about 20 percent the nasdaq uh, the NDX in particular, up about um, 20%. You see the crowding in these handful of names. If you look under the hood, the breadth in both of the S&P and the NASDAQ are not getting better. They're just not. And we know that those top five names make up 45% of the NASDAQ 100 and about 25 or 23% of the S&P 500. And this tweet from Carter, and I think he did it on Options Action on Friday afternoon, really struck me. It doesn't mean anything other than, well, let's see what happens over the next couple of months. He said, for the month of August, we've made 10 new intraday highs. That's now 11, if you include Monday, all-time highs in the S&P 500. This hasn't happened in the month of August since 1987. The record of intraday all-time highs in the month of August is 11, which happened in 1929. Guy, talk to us. 87, you were trading. 29, wow. you were probably just dollar cost averaging a little bit. That's a that's a crazy <laughs> stat. Oh, I love the dates, too. You're bringing up all the best dates in stock market history. 1929, 1987. Karen Feinerman, I mean, it's like, you know, when you're talking about two years to pull out of Do you know what, when you're talking about stock market history, I'm not sure 29 and 87, despite actually being a fairly decent year overall, want to be the years that people are referencing historically. Yeah, that's true. Probably throw in, I think, 72 to 74 was pretty bad as well. But other than that, I mean... I don't know what to make of statistics like that. And and Carter is obviously excellent at his job, but sort of trying to run a portfolio of, you know, value-oriented stuff, uh, that's, it's really hard for me to change my book dramatically based on something like that. So, you know, I just, I'm long. I'm always long. If we see a correction, which wouldn't shock me at all, I've been in this business a while, I've seen more than I can count, 
I'm just going to lose money and ride it out and look for things to buy. So I'm, I, I accept that that is statistically likely, but I can't, I'm not going to trade around it. 1789 was a very good year for guillotines. I don't want to keep referencing that, though, when I'm talking about the guillotines. Let's bring in now another voice who thinks maybe September could bring more smiles to investors. But the risk may be after that. That is the aforementioned Tom Lee, the head of research at Fundstrack Global Advisors, CNBC contributor, and his nearly daily note, a must-read. As many people know, Tom, on social media, I cite a lot of your stuff, especially at night. We're talking about COVID and the trends there. You and tireless Ken doing a great job. So you've heard our historical conversation, Marie Antoinette aside. What is mm-hmm. your take on history, market trends, and where we may be headed or beheaded? Uh, ooh, beheaded. <laughs> Scary. Um, uh, I, I think it, nice. uh, I think markets uh, can alarm everybody because we're already up 20% year to date and we're still in a pandemic. Um, but the underlying fundamentals are still really strong, and I think there's a lot of pent-up demand. So one thing that makes me constructive is we are making a lot of highs in August, and I think those stats are very pertinent, but it's coming at a time of great caution. Um, most of our clients uh, kind of agree with what everyone's saying here. You know, we're, we're extended, and it's overbought, and nothing's cheap. And as you know, when people are looking for a top, that's really when markets can surprise you because we're in the midst of a wall of worry. So I, I'm in the camp that September probably surprises people because uh, even though the seasonal say we're down in September, whenever the market's upgraded in 13% in the first half, September actually is one of the strongest months of the year. So I think we, we could actually have a pretty dramatic rally in September in the midst of a wall of worry because obviously there's a lot of things to worry about. Yeah, you know, and and so this stat that we're showing here, there's two ways to look at it. September has the worst average since 1945, down six-tenths of one percent. But as Josh Brown pointed out on Halftime Report today, Tom, that that number can be a little bit misconstrued. Yes, if you say that, say, okay, September's the worst month, it's generally because that's when we've had the biggest massive drop. So in other words, it tends to do okay, say, nine out of ten years, but the problem is, that 10th year that it doesn't has such a big drop, it screws with all the averages, right? We know how averages work. Sure. You also have a price target on the S&P 500 that I think is basically not a target, but September, you think, has the highest number versus the year in. In other words, do you think the market will make its highs for the year next month? Uh, That's a possibility. So I think, you know, our year-end target is 4,600 for the S&P, and I think we could, we'll be touching close to 4,650 this month in September. But uh, the reason I I think it's a possibility is that, you know, there are some headwinds developing. You know, one is the eviction and mortgage moratoriums ending. So we we have to see how how this really plays out in the economy. But, you know, there there are going to be people who become, you know, homeless. And then we don't know how the fall wave uh, looks for COVID, although, uh, you know, the base case is still that this wave that we're in the midst is really the wave through the fall. So this is the worst. And if that's the case, the market can extend the rally. But those are two uncertainties. And of course, the third is the Fed potentially tapering. And, you know, it, it, despite what I think a lot of people think is uh, the market's priced in, I don't think so. I think there'd be quite a lot of turbulence once the tapering takes place. So there's a lot of things to worry about after September. 
But I think in the month, in the September that we're facing now, I think people are cautious. They think we're going to have a drawdown. Uh, counter seasonals, you know, whenever markets are strong in the first half, September is actually one of the best months up two thirds of the time. And it's one of the strongest uh, in terms of median gain. So I, I think that that's why we could add at least 100 points in this month. Hey, Tom's Tim. So positioning wall of worry are reasons why you're constructive on September. You've talked about pent up demand and just, you know, overall where you still think that there's major tailwinds. But, you know, small caps, IWM, uh, when you look at industrials and even transports and, and even some of the names that are the most cyclical in whether it's industrial or energy, um, they haven't performed. Uh, we've been expressing our concern around the, the, the lack of breadth and that the Nasdaq has really been about five stocks. Um, how do you reconcile that if the world is such a decent place to, to be investing more broadly? Uh, yes, uh, our, our team's been looking at it under the hood, and including tireless Ken, who just had a baby today. Um, congratulations to Ken. But uh, Congrats. Yeah. Wow. There's one measure to, of strength, which is the percentage of stocks above the 50-day and their 200-day. So they're both in a positive short-term and long-term trend. And the groups that you're mentioning, the cyclicals, the, you know, the industrials, the materials, energy, they're the ones showing the biggest gain. So I think that they're actually coming back into trend, more stocks within energy. So even though the energy index is down, there's actually growing strength. And if you look at the S&P 500 advanced decline line, that made a new high coincident with S&P new highs. So it was not an index led by large caps. This was a broad participation. And in fact, you know, comparing the July highs to the August highs, most of those gains were posted by uh, epicenter stock. So I, I think that you've had broadening participation, even though Fang is rallying. And, and again, we like Fang because, you know, many of these things like Amazon, Apple, Netflix, they're they're trailing yeah. the market year to date. I think they're going to catch up into year end. So I, I kind of like everything. I think it's an everything rally. And, and very quickly, though, because I will wait for the uh, the new note. By the way, congrats to Tireless. Ken, we'll, he's going to test that Tireless if he just had a baby <laughs> yeah. as well and, the, and his family on, on that on that birth. <laughs> Uh, I saw a headline that COVID cases down 10,000 on a seven-day average from the last rolling week as well. There are some positive. I know it's tough. I know there's a lot of people suffering, but there are some positive trends we are seeing. Are there not? Quickly. Yeah, uh, yeah absolutely, Brian. You know, uh, one of the things is Delta is so contagious and transmissible, and it's scary, but it has been playing out in roughly 50 days in every region it infects. And Florida is a great example. Florida, across almost all the counties now, cases are rolling hard and and we're seeing that in, in many of the states like Missouri, Alabama, uh, you know, Louisiana, which, of course, you know, has been hit hard by the hurricane. So I think you're seeing more states experience that rollover. And hopefully if that continues to play out, COVID is retreating in the U.S. And that would be a good news story. Yeah, well, let's hope that certainly is the path. Tom Lee, we'll look forward to the note tonight. Always a must read. Congrats to Ken. Tom, thank you very much. Uh, all Great, right, uh, Karen, let's let's trade this and, and we'll start with you. We've talked to you a little bit about energy. Tom's been bullish. It hasn't played out as well, maybe as he'd hoped in the last couple of months. Oil stocks just seem to not be able to get out of their own way as well. Are you a believer in anything in the energy space? I'm asking for a friend. <laughs> I am. I don't have a ton of exposure, but I have some OIH because I just sort of wanted broad exposure. I know that balance sheets are better than they have been. And um, so collectively, the, the, the space is in better shape. But I just wanted sort of a more of a sentiment change. So I do have some exposure in, in OIH, but uh, it's not a big position. 
Yeah, to Tom's point, he talks about the OIH a lot, that the price oil is here, OIH is there, and something is disconnected. Karen, thank you very much. All right. As we gear up for a new trading month, also a new month, be sure to catch our CNBC Pro Talk with top-ranked fund manager Amy Zhang of Alger. She is sitting down with this guy named Brian Sullivan tomorrow. She's going to give a bunch of small and mid-cap stock picks. I know the moderator is fantastic. That all kicks off tomorrow at 1.30 p.m. Eastern Time. I've seen some of the stocks. A lot of new names. I had to Google and look up basically on CBC.com to figure out who are these people. If you're a CBC Pro subscriber, log in. If you're not, sign up for CNBC Pro. And you can go to CNBC.com slash pro to see that tomorrow at 1.30. All right, coming up. Is Ethereum the new face of the crypto craze? The currency outpacing Bitcoin in a big way lately we're going to dive back into the crypto trade and figure out exactly why and where it's going. Plus, we are all over some big after-hours moves. CrowdStrike and PVH, both out with their numbers, stocks in very different directions. And we're back right after this. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. All right, welcome back to Fast Money. We have got an earnings alert for you on two big names, one in computer security, the other, Calvin Klein. That is CrowdStrike and PVH, both on the move after reporting their numbers. Josh Lipton standing by on CrowdStrike, but let's kick things off with Courtney Reagan. And PVH at a stock that is shooting higher. What did they do right, Courtney? Yeah, Brian, you know, it was a really huge earnings beat and better than expected outlook that's sending those PVH shares surging after hours. The owner of Calvin Klein and Tommy Hilfiger posting earnings more than twice as strong as expected as the company managed costs just much better than the analysts had forecast. Total revenues grew 46 percent. Digital revenue grew 35 percent. International was the bright spot, particularly Europe. International business, in fact, now above pre-pandemic levels. Tom Hilfiger's total sales coming in stronger than expected at $1.135 billion. Calvin Klein sales missing just slightly at $929 million. PVH announced it did complete the sale of its heritage brands business to the Authentic Brands Group earlier this month for $223 million. Lower promotions help improve gross margins to 57.7%, and PVH does expect gross margins to continue to improve. But for the third quarter, the company is 
giving earnings guidance and revenue growth ranges above analyst consensus. However, it does expect that business in North America will remain challenged because international tourism isn't expected to return significantly this year. As you pointed out, Brian, PVH shares are sharply higher after hours, but well underperforming the retail ETF, the XRT, year to date, up 19 percent to 49 percent growth, respectively. The conference call is tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Brian. All right, Cordy, thank you very much. Big quarter there. All right, Tim, you told us earlier today that you'd be watching this report. What is your takeaway? I mean, it just seems universally positive. Well, the story here is an allegory and a thread you can tie through some of the other names, whether it's been Gap or Macy's or you know, recovery in, in terms of gross margins, not giving the house away, not needing to give the house away, uh, but the digital sales growth and being in control of your destiny. And some of this DTC uh, that obviously leaders like Nike, et cetera, have, have, have shown the way. You know, this is a recovery and this is a recovery of brands themselves. Uh, and I think their ability to not only just people coming from wearing sweatpants all day, et cetera, but. I mean, I think you have a case here where these were some brands that in many cases, a Tommy Hilfiger, Hilfiger or a Calvin Klein, where ubiquity, they were fighting as much as even, you know, relevancy. And, and I think this is part of a twofold dynamic in the recovery. One is truly the businesses are run better and they're running the new economy in a digital format with higher gross margin and no need to promote. And I think with the consumer where they are, that continues. The stock breaking out above those old time highs we hit in May, I think very important because as Courtney pointed out, the stock is underperformed and there are technicals here around that 110 uh, to 115 level that I think you have to watch. But I, I think the stock can hold these numbers. All right, Karen, what's your thought there on PVH? Good numbers, but is it worth owning? Well, I don't own it because I had actually thought that I didn't love the business, which is more wholesale than direct to consumer. Although, as Tim said, they're starting to uh, increase that as a percentage of their revenues. I was very impressed with the gross margin. That was really good. And to Tim's point about pricing, this is good for not having to be promotional. It's interesting to me that given that Macy's is their biggest customer, that the stock didn't trade up on the yeah. heels of Macy's good earnings. So good for them. Um, having, I, you know, I don't love to buy things up $8. So I'm going to pass on this one. But uh, excellent execution. I think I was, I was surprised and impressed. Karen fades it, even though that's not the game we're playing. Now let's turn to the cloud. <laughs> CrowdStike on the move after earnings as well, but going in the opposite direction. The call now underway. Josh, what seems to be the issue? So, Brian, remember heading into this print, this stock was up about 30% this year. It actually hit a new all-time high uh, just yesterday. Now in the after hours, though, giving some of that back. As for the print, beats on the top and bottom, Q3 guidance. EPS was in line at the midpoint. Revenue above for the year, 43 to 49 cents versus expectations of 40. Revenue, 1.39 to 1.41 billion. Expectation was 1.36. Did check in with Mike Walkley over at Ken Accord Genuity. He says solid print. Net new customers continues accelerating, he says. The number of new customers using multiple products, that continues to growing 66% using four or more modules. So why the pressure in the after hours? Mike does note that ARR was about, was about 3% over consensus, that is below prior prints. And Mike says, listen, there were simply very high expectations, he argues, into this report. On the call, CEO George Kurtz saying this was an outstanding Q2. There was strong demand across the market. 13,080 for the customer count now. The threat environment is fierce, he says, and CrowdStrike is seen as a trusted leader in security. Brian, back to you. All right, Josh Lipton, thank you very much. All right, let us trade now. CrowdStrike, the stock, 
until just now, up 25% in 90 days, closing in on the median analyst target price. But, Guy, maybe price to perfection, your take on CrowdStrike and the quarter. Yeah, more than perfection. I mean, obviously, the stock is expensive. We've known it's expensive for a while, but the stock continued to trade higher. And quite frankly, I think you look for an opportunity to buy it again. 265-ish was the level we topped out mid-July a couple times. That's basically where we're trading now. It's a valuation call, and if you can get comfortable with it, these, all these stocks are in play. I mean, we've talked about that, Zscaler, FireEye, uh, Palo Alto Network. So the story's not over by any means. It's just valuation got in the way, I think, on the back of this quarter. Dan, your take, crowd. All right, we're not hearing Dan. Dan, I you hit, hit the unmute button there. Crowd strike. All right, we are just getting started here on Fast Money. We'll get Dan's comments in just a minute. Here's, though, what is coming up next. One crypto cruising higher. Ethereum outpacing Bitcoin in a big way. So, is there a new crypto king? Plus, we're making a call to the bullpen with a guest fast pitch. And this one could be a real home run. We've got that and a lot more when Fast Money returns. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. All right, welcome back. Well, today, something pretty interesting happened in crypto. Actually, not just today, but recently as well. The biggest assets did not move together. Yet Bitcoin down a couple of percent while Ethereum rose pretty much almost as much as Bitcoin fell. Now, this is actually becoming a little bit of a pattern as of late. Check out Ethereum's gains, nearly tripling Bitcoin over the past month. And that move is really catching the eye of one of our traders. Dan, what do you make of this short-term thing or kind of a long-term shift in sentiment? Well, it could be a long-term shift. Right now, Ethereum is about 45% of the market cap of uh, Bitcoin. And we learned from Coinbase's Q2 call just recently that for the first time ever, Ethereum volumes were greater than that of Bitcoin. I think Bitcoin probably has a little bit of a branding problem. It's called a cryptocurrency. But I think over the last few years, a lot of us have just focused on the fact that it really is a store of value. And when you think about what's going on in Ethereum and then this kind of rage that's going on with NFT, non-fungible tokens, how when Visa paid $150,000 in cryptocurrency for that crypto punk maybe uh, a week or week and a half ago. What did they use? They used Ether. And all of a sudden now Ethereum is being viewed as this kind of currency, as a, uh, you know, a cryptocurrency there. So to me, I think that's probably some of what's going on here. And obviously Solana is another one. You're seeing a lot of these, um, you know, NFTs being um, priced in, in that currency. So BK has talked about it on the show before. Um, all of a sudden now we're seeing a lot of assets that people want to own being priced in uh, cryptocurrencies other than Bitcoin. And I think that's probably what's going on with Ethereum right now. Interesting trends there. Certainly some good points about it being used more for actual transactions. So let's continue to talk about more of this and bring in Coindesk Chief Strategy Officer 
Melton Demers. Melton, good to have you back on Fast Money. I don't know if this will make any sense to anybody, but I feel like it's Peter Brady. He always wanted to step and, you know, sort of take the spotlight from Greg, and it never quite happened. And I wonder if now the time is Ether and Ethereum. Are they stealing some of Bitcoin's thunder? Uh, hey, uh, great to be back. And and look, um, we don't view it as competition at CoinShares. We have $5 billion in assets under management across our product, uh, product line of exchange-traded products. And look, we've seen this trend before. Notably, in 2018, January of 2018, uh, Bitcoin dominance dipped to about 39%. Currently, Bitcoin dominance is sitting at around 40%. Crypto markets operate in cycles. Um, Bitcoin offers something very specific to investors. It really has captured the store of value narrative. And what we tend to see is when we have cycles like these, where there's a lot of rapid value appreciation in new layer one protocols like Solana, Avalanche, Luna, others, we yeah. see people rotating out of Bitcoin to chase gains in those. But really, at the end of the day, what we see is people rotating back into Bitcoin when these cycles reach their natural end. And so this oscillation that we see in Bitcoin dominance is part of a cycle we've seen, honestly, since as early as 2014. So in my view, it's uh, it's not competitive. What we're starting to really see, though, is different blockchain protocols becoming platforms for specific use cases. Because again, the proposition of each protocol is very different. Bitcoin offers security and stability. Ethereum has the EVM and smart contracts. Some of these other new platforms have really high speed and transaction throughput, but make compromises elsewhere. So it's not competition in my view. It's just a maturing of the space and a diversification from one asset class with a beta of one yeah. Bitcoin into a broader asset class. People buy buy cryptos for two basic reasons, and I'm I'm wildly you know sort of narrowing it down, Melton, which is number one, they just want to buy low and sell high and make some money. They don't really care if or what the, the coin does, like a Doge, some others. So there are going to be people that are just betting and sort of gambling on that, and then there are others that are true acolytes. They they believe that Ethereum will become the underlying platform on, on parts of the blockchain for financial transactions as well. Mm-hmm. Is Ethereum, in your view, and I'm not asking you to knock Bitcoin, is it more useful than Bitcoin or is it being perceived right now among the, the true believers as maybe the more uh, transactional based of the two? view it that way. Look, I think the simple explanation is this. Right now, a lot of the tokens that people are trading, a lot of the short-term alpha or upside is in investing in some of these, these projects that are having really rapid appreciation. For example, if you want to speculate on, on NFTs, you need Ether to, to do that. And so what we're seeing, right, if I hold Bitcoin at 50K and I think it's going to go to 250K by the end of the year, that's a 500% upside. If I see a new token that I think is going to do, you know, 100X or 50X, 
maybe I'll rotate out of Bitcoin into something I think has short-term mm-hmm. higher appreciation potential. But again, this is all highly cyclical. At the end of the day, the trend we have seen consistently and continue to see is people hold different assets for different reasons. There's definitely part of the ecosystem that's speculative. That is, you've alluded to, a lot of people are looking to make long-term allocation, a lot more institutional yeah. capital coming into the space as well. And again, I think people hold different assets for different reasons, and duration really matters, right? If I want to hold an asset 10 years, for me, that's going to be Bitcoin and probably a little bit of Ether as well. If I want to hold something more short-term and take advantage of this current explosion of of inflows and interest we're seeing, I'm probably going to hold something else that has a higher probability of returning my fund or giving me a lot of, of upside. So I think a part of it is really short-term driven behavior around opportunities that exist in this moment in time. Are you saying there are people with excess capital that throughout history will occasionally throw money at a risky investment and hope that it pays off and some do and some don't? That seems to be what's happening, but great long-term perspective. It's it's amazing it happened with with many things over history. Melton Demir's chief strategy officer coin shares. I think I said coin desk earlier, which makes me the Peter Brady of the show. Karen, your quick final thought on crypto and everything Meltem just talked about. Uh, so I have Bitcoin exposure. Um, it's clearly not without risk, but you know, I made my bet. I'm, will, I'm willing to have tremendous downside on it. So it's smaller than other bets that I would make for sure. But it's also in a number of other cryptocurrencies as well, including Ethereum, including Solano. Um, and keep my fingers crossed. <laughs> There's an investment plug. That's a Got strategy. my fingers crossed. It's going to be fine. Yeah. Karen Keep your Feinerman, fingers thank crossed. You. All right, coming up. <laughs> Keep your and your toes, maybe, in some of these coins. All right. The corner of happy and wealthy. Shares of Walgreens popping today. We're going to tell you why. WBA. But first, we've got a fast pitch on deck. Your next guest says this under-the-radar housing stock may be a total home run investment. Who is that home builder? Do you know? Throw us some guesses on the Twitter. Fast Money returns after this. All right, welcome back to Fast Money. Home prices soaring at the fastest pace ever in June. The S&B Case-Shiller National Price Index jumping nearly 19% in our latest survey. It was out this morning. Prices now more than 40% higher than they were even at the height of the housing bubble in 2006. Now, the housing move has given a big boost to the home builders. Look at some of the gains this year and a lot of the big names that we talk about all the time. Toll Brothers, Lennar, D.R. Pulte. Those are the names that come up pretty much in every conversation. But your next guest says there is one way more under-the-radar stock that could see even bigger gains ahead. Shana Sissel is the CIO of Spotlight Asset Group. She has taken the mound for a fast pitch. Shana, tell us about MI Homes. MI Homes is a small cap home builder that you brought, most people probably haven't heard about. Market cap, just under $2 billion. This is a high quality uh, home builder that is in some of the hottest markets in the country. In fact, 56% of their revenue last quarter came from Texas, Florida, South Carolina, and North Carolina. 
They've been increasing their earnings and their revenue steadily over the last few years. This year, they're anticipating uh, earnings growth of about 37%. And the stock is trading at five times earnings. It has a strong balance sheet, increasing cash flow, decreasing debt, and it just is doing all the right things. So it's definitely benefiting from the tailwind in the housing market, but it's also a potential acquisition candidate as some of those larger names you just mentioned look for ways to get into those hot housing markets quickly by acquiring a smaller player like M&I Homes. The fast pitch, the ticker there is MHO. I know, Karen, you've got a question for Shana. Yeah, it's a really interesting pitch. And as you said, sort of a niche player. But getting to your point about M&A, do you think they're open to that? I don't think insiders own a lot of stock. I don't know if that makes it less likely, more maybe less likely, or more likely, rather. What's your? Is that something you think could be a near-term event? I think it could be a intermediate term event. I think they're doing quite well right now. Like I said, growing rev, uh, earnings this year at about 37%. They have 56% of their revenue coming from the super housing markets, but they're also in markets that are underserved and have more affordable housing. So that's largely in the Midwest. They have major operations in Columbus and Cincinnati, as well as Detroit, Michigan, some areas of Illinois, Indianapolis. So these are underserved communities where they have new smart series homes, which are, are quicker to build and more affordable, but still energy efficient. They're known for strong customer service as well and really high quality construction. So I'm not sure they would be open to a acquisition right this very second. But given the way the industry is moving and the way that the demand for housing is moving, I think they would be open to an acquisition, especially if the buyer had an attractive price that they were willing to pay. Really interesting fast pitch there, Shana. Appreciate it. M-H-O. All right. No more questions. It is time to vote. You know how it works. Are you buying? Shana's pitch on M-I Homes. Guy, first to you. Before I give my answer, I just want to say uh, the way you just impelled yourself with Coindesk and CoinShares makes you more Sam the Butcher than Peter Brady. But what I will say is very strong pitch. They just announced a $100 million stock buyback. Wedbush gave them a $100 price target. I say well done on this one. There's a line in a Beastie Boys song about that somewhere. Tim Seymour? Yeah, so first of all, um, if, if Peter Brady had that cool pad up in the attic that Greg put together with the beads hanging down, he wouldn't Johnny be so Bravo. angry. I love this pitch. I got Johnny Bravo because he fit the suit. But I love this pitch by Shauna. And I love the fact that this home builder is meeting demographics that actually are trying to buy homes right now. That's part of the growth. It's part of the affordability dynamic. Love the valuation. And yeah, maybe maybe a takeover target. Dan, what do you think? Yeah, buying it? I, I will. I really do like the pitch. I'm just not a buyer of home builders. I think a lot of the trends that Shana mentions that they might be benefiting from, um, I think are about to probably turn in the not so distant future as we get into 2022. So I'm just not a buyer of home builders. I thought it was a great power pitch, though. All right. All right, Karen, you had some questions. You got a little more detailed insight there. Your take on the fast pitch. 
Yeah, well, I really love the fast pitch. I don't know if you can tell. That's a buy. I think that the macro of um, millennials moving into housing was accelerated during uh, the pandemic, but not extinguished. So I like the space and I like the pitch and uh, nice job. All right. Good stuff there. The mysterious fifth trader, Buddy Hinton, always votes no. All right. The traders have spoken. <laughs> now, folks out there, it is you got that. You are deep in the Brady trivia. Are you buying Shana's fast pitch on MI Homes? You can vote in our Twitter poll at CNBC Fast Money. Shana, good luck. Thanks for coming on. Great fast pitch. A new name there. All right, up next. Walgreen. Up more than 4% today. And two of our traders own this name. We're going to get their take on the big breakout for WBA next. All right, welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Walgreens topping the tape today, in fact, jumping nearly 4.5% on the back of news that it plans to raise pay for its hourly workers. Good news. They raise pay and the stock goes up. Walgreens outpaced the broader market this year, up 27%. Tim, you flagged the move. What's your take? Well, I think, first of all, we're, we're watching Roz Brewer begin to put her mark and stamp on this company. And if you think about what Starbucks has done in terms of their social initiatives and how they, they've really been a foundation for supporting their workers and, and, and frankly, finding a very strong working staff. And so, I mean, the dynamic at Walgreens is such that also people had been concerned about labor costs overall uh, in the retail space. And I think coming forward and articulating a plan, articulating where they're going to take these costs are part of the story here. I think the other part of the story, really, though, is is getting back into the online uh, drugstore business and beginning to fight toe to toe, maybe even with new entrants like Amazon. Um, I think people were concerned about the, the duality of where this stock fit in a uh, covid recovery and also where it was a place that obviously people were spending a lot of time and how many you know sales were pulled forward during covid. I think the valuation is quite attractive. I think most importantly, this is a company that's still in transition and I have a lot of faith in the management team. All right, WBA, a big move there. Certainly raising wages and being rewarded for that. Good sign. All right, coming up, NXP Semi getting fried today. And options traders are betting on more pain ahead for the chip stock. We're going to break down the details as well. And there is still time to vote on tonight's fast pitch. Do you like MI Home? Is it a buy? And do our Twitter poll at CNBC Fast Money. The results coming up. We're back right up here. Miss a moment of fast? Catch us anytime on the go. Follow the Fast Money Podcast. All right, welcome back to Fast Money, everybody. Look at NXP Semiconductors today getting slammed on 5.5%. Although it did hit, let's be, let's be clear, a record high earlier in the week and Still at more than 35% in 2021, but options traders are betting today's price action might be a sign of more pain to come in the stock. Mike Co. joining us now with the options action. Mike. Yeah, so uh, in NXPI, we did see it trade about three times the average daily put volume today. And one of the larger trades we saw was in an October 210-220 collar. Somebody bought 350 of the 210 puts, sold 220 of those calls. Uh, net net they spent about four dollars per share to put that on and obviously buying puts selling calls 
that's a bet that the stock either is going to sit right here or that it could potentially go lower. My guess is that this trade is probably some form of a hedge, and that actually makes some sense because, as you point out, the stock only recently hit highs, and so it's only off a little bit from those highs right now, and it might be a way that they could be locking in some gains, at least for the next six weeks or so. Okay, Mike, thank you very much. All right, Dan, you got a take on NXP Semi? Yeah, I mean, the stock's down day really stuck out here. It had to do with some insider selling. This comes days after um, the company announced $2 billion additional to their share buyback. So maybe it's the optics of that. But listen, this stock trades below a market multiple, below many of its peers, expected to do you know double-digit percenting, uh, you know EPS growth next year and high single-digit sales growth. I mean, to me, it seems like a pretty fair name here. Um, so maybe you look for a retracement of some of that move to the levels of the put strike that Mike talked about, and that's where you kind of reload on the long side of this one. All right, good real-world uh, action there on NXPI, guys. Mike and Dan, thank you very much. For more options action, of course, tune into the full show every Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. All right, time now to find out if you were all buying at home. Shayna Sissel's fast pitch on MI Homes. And the people, they have spoken. And in what might be a fast pitch First, it's a tie. Exactly half the voters, hopefully there are more than two, are buying MI Homes and and half are selling. That, my friends, is called making a market. All right, it is time now to go for a final trade. Let us now go around the horn. Tim Seymour, let's kick it off. Yeah, Brian, uh, love the Brady Bunch references tonight. And, and therefore, if you can put a mustache on Peter Brady and turn him into Phil Packer, you can put a little bit of a shine on Bank of America and start to say, can it compete with J.P. Morgan? Bank of America, to me, trades cheap to the best in class. Uh, but ultimately, I, I think between the capital return program and their M&A and sales and trading businesses humming along and the Money Center Bank, I like Bank of America relative value over JPM. Thank you, sir. Karen Feinerman, a final trade. Yeah, well, first of all, tie goes to Shane, I think, so great pitch. My final trade is CVS for a lot of the reasons that WBA, uh, uh, Walgreens Boots, it's cheap for one. If rates rise, I think this is a well below market multiple. And, and booster shots, I think, will be a benefit to CVS. Damn. Yeah, QQQ, NASDAQ 100. We were talking about how extended it is. If you look out to October expiration, the QQQ 380 at the money put would only cost you 2.2%. That looks cheap to me. Yep. I am a seller of the QQQ buyer of the puts. And guy. All the Brady's ate at McDonald's. You should too, Brian. Everybody, thank you. That does it for us. Tune in for a special hour next. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee.